Good afternoon and welcome to another episode in the Sander Sales Leadership Series. My guest today is Tom Casley, VP of Sales with Outreach.io in the UK. Now, when I first posted that Tom was going to be my guest today, I got a lot of comments on LinkedIn. Comments such as, Tom Casley is one of the best sales directors I've come across with up to... Uh, 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 no, I'll state that again. Tom Casley is one of the best sales directors I've come across with up-to-the-minute expertise. Here's another one. Hands down, Tom Castley has been the most influential boss I've ever had. Always worth listening to his nuggets of wisdom. And Tom Castley is always worth listening to. Well, I've had the distinct pleasure of working with Tom on a number of projects over the years. And all of those are absolutely true. He is insightful. He is caring. He is humble, humorous, and he's just great fun to be around. But more importantly, is after talking about sales with Tom, you're always left energized. You're always left reflective. And, and both those are they're, they're interesting states to be in, to be both energized and reflective to thinking, oh, that's so true. I wonder what he meant by... And it's just it's always a fascinating conversation. So I'm thrilled to have him as my guest today. Now... Before you go thinking that Tom is some sort of saint or he's perfect, he is not. After all, he supports Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, well, maybe that was just part of his self-development in terms of the resilience that it gave him. Maybe it's about developing his humility. I don't know, but it certainly seemed to be working. Tom, you're very welcome to the show. Now, Tom, before we get started, I came across this video during the week and I thought it was a wonderful... I guess, metaphor for what sales leadership is all about. So I'm going to play the video and then I'm going to ask you how you feel, how you think it relates to sales leadership. This man Watch right this. here is my great grandfather. He's the first cat herder in our family. Herding cats. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half wild short hairs, well, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done. I got this one this morning, right here. And if you look at his face, it's it just ripped to shreds, you know? You see the movies, you hear the stories, it's, I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. So I guess my question is, what parallels you see between sales leadership and herding cats? I think kind of, you know, how do most people get into sales management? You know, salesperson, and so by default you get promoted into management. And the first big, big mistake you make is that you think that every sales rep should be like you. And it's kind of, you know, created in my own image. And lots of salespeople have, you know, bulletproof personalities, strong opinions, all the reasons why they survive in the industry, because we need to have a tough skin. And it's like herding cats mm. rather than uh, creating an environment where variety can excel. Yeah. So if you feel like you're herding cats, it's probably because you're trying to be too prescriptive. Right. Maybe go and have a look at uh, some of the old stuff around situational leadership. 
prescriptive is S2 and non-prescriptive is S3. Uh, look that up on Google, it's really useful. Just could just we'll, we'll look it up. Maybe you could just give us a one-liner roughly on what S1 versus S2 means to the wider. Yeah. So actually, so S1 is directive. Go away, do that. Come back when you've done it. Right. Yeah. Very kind of you know you might do it during onboarding, but it shouldn't last for very long. Yep. Uh, S2 is let me show you how I would do it. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, literally just answering questions the whole time. You become the oracle of sales rather than a sales leader. Yeah. And S3 is let me help you to do it your way. Right. And although it takes longer, uh, it takes more effort, you never answer the same question twice. If you're really good, uh, you'll actually then ask that person when they've, when they've created some knowledge mm -hmm. to go off and, and share that with other people. So if somebody comes and asks you the same question, say, well, why don't you go and ask so-and-so? They know how to do it. It doesn't right. have to be me who answers it. And um, yeah, that's how you effectively make yourself redundant. If you're a redundant sales leader, you've done an amazing job. So, so I'd, I'd love to just explore that with you because I think for anybody who's, who's been in sales leadership, anybody who's been led by anybody can recognize all three types. And depending on, I guess, the company culture, you're going to see a dominant type in there. Yeah. And it's obviously, it's the S3 that we're looking for. How, so I, I, I'm now working for you. I am a, a, a new frontline manager. And I, 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 know, I, I know, I understand intuitively what you're talking about by the S1, 2, and 3. How do I get from S1? which is, I think, fear-based leadership to S3. What are the markers? Uh, well, I, I have my new starter. I have a, a new favorite book this year, which is Dave Marquette's Turn the Ship Around. So he was a submarine commander right. um, and managed the worst performing submarine on the fleet. Spent, I think it was two or three years studying the particular submarine he was going to be the commander of. And then literally a month or two before his commission, they changed the submarine. And that's a bit like going from driving um, I don't know, a, a Ford Mondeo to flying a 747. You, you, the experience in one doesn't lend itself to the experience in the other. Yep. So in the armed forces, you know, everything goes to the you know, permission to die, permission to do this, permission. But you can only make those decisions if you know the craft inside out. And he didn't. So kind of by accident, he had to, he couldn't make decisions. He had to move decisions to the point of information. And so he created this leader leader model. Right. So how you know when you're at stage three or S3 is when somebody says to you, ah, oh, Tom, you know, I've got this, I had it this morning. Somebody said to me, oh, I've got this difficult situation with the customer. I want to go back and give them some information. That's not right. What, you know, what should I say? S2 leader would be, well, let me write an email up for you and you can send it. I'm busy, they're not. An S3 leader is, well, what do you think you should say? What have you considered? Well, I've, oh, I'm not sure. Well, okay, if you were in their shoes, how would you, what would you like to hear? Ah, oh, okay. Well, I'd like to hear that, you know, we're working on it and we've listened and this, that and the other and that, you know, we'll keep an eye on it. Okay, they're all good things. What, what else might there be? There might be 
something else and something else. Uh, have you thought of this? So more question-based approach. It takes, it's difficult because you're asking questions and you have to think about those questions when it's really easy for me to come up with the answer. Mm. Uh, but then when having gone through it and they come to the end of it, it's like, right, okay. So now they're empowered to be able to think about that constructively next time around. Maybe the next time they come to me, rather than coming with nothing, they'll come with, I have this situation. I've considered these three approaches. I intend to use approach one because this one doesn't work and this one doesn't work. And this is how I've gone. Brilliant. Sounds great. Do it. Isn't that just coaching? It's uh, so a lot of people. So coaching is in situational leadership is S2. Mm. Mentoring is S3. And there's a difference. Coach, coaches show you how to kick a ball. Coaches show you how to line up and practice certain things. And it's doing it the way. Um, I remember you saying to me a long while ago around Sandler, for example, it's like sheet music. Mm. We all play the same notes, but the company we work in might be the style of music and the salesperson that we are is like the instrument. Yeah. Same, same notes, but the whole thing can be very different. To my mind, coaching is telling you what instrument, what notes and what style of music. Mm. Mentoring is just keeping uh, true to the sheet music and letting the personality, the individualism and the authenticity of the person shine through. Okay, interesting. I'm curious to know the role, and I, there's other areas I want to explore with you in a moment, but the role technology plays in that as well. Are there technologies that can help that or accelerate that process as they go through those, those, three, part, those three stages? Uh, from a coaching and mentoring standpoint, I mean, yeah, I, ultimately anything that gives visibility into what they're doing, yes. Um, so, you know, you and I spoke a few weeks ago around, um, uh, you know, call recording or conversational intelligence. So I think it was gone that we were talking about, but you know, any of those platforms, yeah. uh, after the fact, uh, give us huge coaching opportunities. And, um, you know, again, from an S3 standpoint is, you know, you, you play a section of the call, I identify something that might be suboptimal or might be great uh, as well and you know in s2 you just go off into oh it's brilliant the way you did that oh what you could have done is this what i would have done in that situation is this this and this my first question i ask is why do you think i stopped it here <laughs> i love that one yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, there, and there's there's no there's no moving away from that question there isn't no the first for people who haven't worked with me for very long. It's normally, I don't know, <laughs> help, <laughs> you know. Have, have a guess. There's no wrong answer. I'd love to know what you took out of that last couple of minutes. Yeah. Cause that also then gives me an idea of what is their level of, of kind of self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a biggie. So, uh, and, and I'm curious as well, because from an outreach perspective, it's 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 okay it's in a different place from a technology perspective i'm just wondering are there markers in that as well where you can pick up uh on a rep's growth because i know as a tool well my understanding of please correct yeah me, a very tactical tool for engaging with prospects but at some level it must be able to also identify 
performers versus non-performers because it, it, it sets a cadence. But then it does, so, operate that is going to be different. The difference, the difference for me in that is if you think about, you know, before sales engagement platforms existed like outreach, uh, pretty much 99% of data that was entered into a CRM system was judgment based data. Mm. And uh, so it's like the Facebook of, of business. You know, I'm not going to put up that I'm having a bad day or this went wrong or I spilt the milk or I burnt something or the barbecue didn't go well. You know, it's like the barbecue is amazing. And you, you kind of take the picture of the three people who were there and make it look as though it was really busy. You know, most salespeople make the CRM look good because I don't want to get beaten up. Um, the difference with outreach is it's empirical data. When I had a call, the call is logged. When I had a meeting, the meeting is logged. When I you know, do tasks, they're logged. So the timing of them is accurate. The level of data that's being captured is way beyond what would be entered on a keyboard. Mm. And you know, a knee-jerk reaction to that might be, well, that's brilliant. You just basically, big brother over my shoulder, is just going to be time. Well, I can tell you when you get that much data, you can't consume it all, not at a management level, but the reps can, it's like, you know, uh, you know, the reps can look at it and it's like ways for their business. They can just see, you know, is there a traffic jam coming? Where, where is my data slightly off? It's like, it's like having a personal trainer with you the whole time. Yeah. And so now I can see, well, okay, I, I have, you know, typically I'm, I'm nine days going from this part to this part of the process. And I would normally speak to four different people. And if I'm not, then that's a red flag for me. They actually start to see the DNA of their deals. And then you can coach to that. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I'd like to progress with you through a few areas to, that, that are pertinent to sales leadership. Before, though, maybe we could set a, a kind of a framework for that. What are the kind of things as a sales leader that you're seeing that are relevant, topical, important on the sales leader's agenda today? Uh, well, everybody wants a crystal ball at the moment because <laughs> they don't know where it's going to. So, uh, you know, uh, just for every company now, uh, you know, cash has always been important, but it's now massively important uh, and pipeline. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were, there were many companies that, you know, were okay with pipeline and they could always pull it out the hat, but they, you know, they're now seeing real challenges with regards to the predictability of that, the velocity of deals and is it the right quality of the deal size is right and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, if you have, I've, I've always talked about the four sales leader superpowers. Uh, and for me, there were company, culture, uh, deal management, and um, company, culture, deal management, and process. Mm. So company was the ability to be able to talk up in the company and for everybody to go, you look like a swan on water. This person's got it covered. We don't have to worry about it. They just can talk about sales in a way that has everybody feel relaxed. Mm. Yeah. And that's a superpower. And I know some sales leaders just got that nailed. Yeah. The next one is culture. They are the Pied Pipers. Mm. They can stand up internally or externally. People want to buy off them. 
They just have this aura of, I want to buy what they've got. They just have a way of communicating the value of it. They kind of like the, you know, uh, the Apple version of, you know, a rep, you know, whenever they do one of their pitches, you know, I want to buy that. They, they, they had that a way to communicate. Um, deal management is they, they, they don't need a CRM in their heads. They know every deal. They know every person. They know all the values. They know they, they can just, they're like the encyclopedia of that pipeline at the moment or that forecast. Uh, and I had in a previous company, I had a CRO who knew more about my deals than even my reps did. And I don't know how they could account for that information. And then you had the fourth one, which is process, which is, you know, they swallowed the red pill. It's a bit like the matrix and they see it by numbers. It's the, the, the mad scientists of sales and they're looking at the patterns and how things are structured. They're the engineers. Mm. And I've always said to people, there's no right or wrong answer on that, but it's about self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a leader, know what you're good at. So I'm, I've always, so I'm, I'm in order of, in order of willingness, not necessary ability, uh, is process, culture, company deal. Mm. That's, that's my favorite order. So, you know, typically developed skills in those areas. And so if I'm a sales leader and I'm hiring a second line team, mm -hmm. uh, my go-to already is why do I want to hire somebody working for me as a second line manager who's down with process and culture? Maybe look at it the other, they need to be phenomenal at deal management, great at company, pretty okay at culture and uh, to be honest i'm going to set up an environment that's brilliant for them yeah and um although sales leaders might not be thinking about that in terms of balancing teams at the moment for sales leaders who've got a multi-tiered structure that's one of the biggest misses i think in businesses today that's an interesting one because you're you're hiring for fit first yep uh, so somebody may be exceptionally good and has provided exceptional results, but if they don't fit that, that, that slot, let's call it, mm -hmm. that you're creating, then the overall performance is going to be impacted by it. Yeah. So that, that brings me on then to, uh, we could talk about this in a wider context as well, recruitment, because, you know, any type sales leaders I'll talk to, they'll talk about the, you know, the war on talent, how hard it is to find the right people. And so you think then that there's this magnificent process by which they filter through and find people that have that right fit. But then when you see the, 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 the results in terms of salespeople who miss quota or sales leaders who don't last very long in a particular job, you have to wonder, What's happening? And I was curious to know from, from your perspective, kind of standing back from this world, whether you're looking at it through you know, at, at, at reps performance or managers performance, at the end of the day, it's all people. Um, where do you think it's going wrong that we're not able to be more predictive in, in, in putting the right people into the right slots? Oh, and I think there's, there's two ends of that tightrope. Uh, one is, uh, there's a lot of people going into sales and it's not necessarily the right career for them. I think that's, uh, that's actually improving a lot, uh, with the advent of, you know, 
the outbound kind of SDRs, BDRs of this world. So these are the people who come open the doors uh, for then other salespeople to go and close them uh, as we specialize in that area. Um, two is uh, in general, there's, uh, you know, the quality of sales management, sales leadership that's out there is is not great and that's not the that's not the fault of the individual that's they just haven't been given you know the training and enablement mm. uh, and that hasn't been invested in mm. we'll invest in salespeople and we get lots of salespeople training yeah we yeah. don't actually give sales leaders and managers training yeah and you know you'll be aware of the stats you know if you can if you can manage it if you can if you can train the managers and have them roll it out and then support that with training the reps as well. The, the impact is phenomenal. Mm. Look, but you know, the other end of the tightrope is, um, there are thousands of companies out there who have just totally unrealistic goals in terms of what they think revenue should be mm. just in terms of timings. And, you know, at, at one point or another, you know, you've got to, you've got to have the, you've got to have the, the meat high enough, that it's a target, but not so high that the dog don't jump. Yeah. And uh, even they can see it. And yet, you know, we're supposed to be cleverer than dogs and, and we'll just walk in and go, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. If, you can't, if you can't see a way of doing four times your quota, it's not achievable. Explain, what's behind that? Explain that one to me because that's kind of counterintuitive, I think. Yeah, so um, I'm given a quota of a million dollars to do. So one, you know, has anybody ever done it in the company? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I always look for as a rep is, can I do my quota in one deal? Because mm -hmm. uh, it should be possible. If the quota's done right, should be able to do it. Should be able to do your quota in one deal. So what's the biggest deal in the company's history? Oh, it's fifty-five thousand dollars, and I've got a million-dollar quota. Something's off, right? And and I'm using you kind know, of real uh, thing. Um, so when I'm looking at um, uh, doing my deals, I should be able to have some big bets. I should probably have some stuff coming from the channel or from partners. I should have some stuff I'm generating myself. I should have some stuff that's inbound. And if I'm fortunate enough to have a BDR or SDR team, I should have some stuff coming from them. Mm. That should be way in excess of six, seven times my quota number in terms of what I'm looking at there. And then do I have the skills, attributes, support, products, so on and so forth, to then have a win rate that's substantial enough to be aiming at doing four times my quota. And not that, not that we'll do it, but if you aim to do one time, you'll always fail. That old saying of, you know, if you wanna to get to the clouds, don't aim at the clouds, aim at the moon. But you know you need to plan your way around that because you won't win every deal. Things will go wrong. Things will things will happen. But you need to build that padding into it. Yeah. And you know, sadly, most a lot of companies, uh, you know, they'll take money from a VC. They'll have unrealistic expectations around growth. That plan gets passed down to reps. They'll work out. They say, well, okay, we want productivity of a million dollars per rep. We've got twenty. We need twenty reps. And they don't even have any pipeline. And then on top of that, they don't think about realistic ramp times. So the data I saw, you know, a couple of years ago, which hasn't really changed was 9.3 months to first sale is the average in SAS. 
and 13.4 months to full quota bearing rep. In other words, predictable ongoing performance. So over a year. So I've got a 20 million growth target. I then hire 20 reps at the beginning of the year. Mm. If they close anything, it's luck. Yeah. Not down to them. So it's that just makes me feel better. Yeah, but look, you know, this it's a some of that actually for us here in Europe uh, comes from if you if you really wind back the clock. Um, what was I reading a few months ago? So in the U.S., uh, VCs in the U.S. something like forty percent of them have experience. In other words, they've carried a bag, they've run a company, or what have you. Here in Europe, it's six or seven percent. What? They all have a finance. They all have a finance background. Wow. Well, you know, if I was learning to cook, I wouldn't have a rugby player walk me through it. <laughs> yeah. Every now and again, you'll find a rugby player who can cook, but it's not. Yes. Like yeah, yeah. But like, you know, even a stop clock is right twice a day. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because I do remember when I worked in Motorola years ago and we supplied in semiconductors and built two-way radios and so on. So it was very manufacturing-led. But I remember once a guy coming to me from, perch, from procurement and I was supplying into Motorola and he said, uh, our forecast is up. We're, we're going to double the, our run rate. And, and, and therefore, he was saying to me, we're, we need to order X more, number of more parts so we can support this. And, I, and that was the first time I ever challenged the forecast because I didn't understand it. And the bottom line was that, let's say it was 100 million was what this factory produced. And finance in some other country, Germany or wherever, head of finance said, OK, your target now is not 100 million for next year. It's 150 million. So what they did was they divided 150 million people by the, the products that they produced by unit. And they said, okay, we now need to, to, to manufacture X number of more units. So then of course they come out to all their suppliers. Sometimes like us, we had 16 week lead times. So 16 weeks in advance and say, okay, we now need to ramp up and therefore we need you to ramp up and <laughs> supply us in with all of these parts. And it was the first time it ever struck me. The one person was never, was never um, asked their opinion on this was the market. Nobody mm. asked the market. And that's the problem. Then they made all these two-way radios, went out to the sales guys and said, you need to sell more of these. And they're going, the market's going in the opposite direction. You know, yeah. we're no longer using analog radios. It's all digital now. Yeah. And it's that disconnect. It's the ivory tower thinking of somebody in finance saying, okay, you know, we'll just turn the dial on this thing and everything will be fine. It's mad. Yeah. Um, and some of that is, you know, uh, people aren't looking high enough up in the, in the funnel. Yeah. It's something that uh, I've been looking at again over the last year is, you know, this gap between uh, MQL, which is, you know, marketing saying somebody's put their hand up and they're interested or, you know, or we're phoning somebody for the first time. Mm. and how that ends up being an opportunity yeah and here's here's the thing so most sales leaders start looking at something when an opportunity is opened mm. and yet you know you speak to a corporate executive board or anybody like that you know when when you've opened an opportunity they're already 67 percent of the way through the sales process well i don't know about you is uh, you know i i i 
the funnest bit of a relationship is not 67% of the way through my 30 year marriage. <laughs> it's the bit right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But if we all think back to the beginning of our relationship, that was the good bit. Yeah. And then we, we kind of, we hang on to that through to the end. Yeah. Um, your, your, your analogies are just priceless. <laughs> I haven't used that one. I might use it again. Thank you for being very empathetic with your response. But look, the, the yeah. point being is, is that, you know, most of the selling has been done at that point. Yeah. And we weren't even in the conversation or we weren't, we, maybe we were, we weren't even aware of it. Yeah. And you know, there's, um, there's a, there's an analyst called Topo that have actually just been acquired by Gartner. So they must've been saying the right things. And they had three steps above that. Mm. And the three steps above it, the step above uh, opportunity was kind of uh, a meeting. In other words, the initial meeting, as it's called, uh, which is where we'll kind of do the disqualification, qualification agenda, whichever way you look at it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, how many of those meetings do you need to generate an opportunity? Mm. Some sales leaders will be able to tell you what the conversion rate is of those initial meetings to opportunities. Yep. The next level up is how many short calls is what I would call it, you know, uh, five minute conversations to try and book those meetings. Do you need to have to book those meetings? No sales leader, maybe a hand, no in terms of percentage, maybe 0.01% will tell you what their conversion rate is from short calls to meetings. Yep. And then the one about that is, well, how many activities do I need to do to coerce people enough to kind of build up this momentum such that somebody's willing to have a two or three minute call with me? Yeah, in this multi-channel world. Mm. And if you really understood those numbers, you would then be able to understand, well, okay, what do we need to do to drive the revenue number up? Mm. I need to go back from how many opportunities I'm generating to how many of those conversations do we have? And then, you know, I know my total addressable market is, I was talking to a company the other day, they said, well, we've got two and a half thousand companies we can go after in the UK. Brilliant. How many have you spoken to in the last, you know, you know, nine to 10 months? Well, we've spoken to about 300 of them. There's multiple people in each account. Okay. If you spoke to them quicker, could you get them? Yeah, but we, we just don't have a clue what we need to do to be able to speak to them quicker. They, they couldn't see above the opportunity line. Wow. That, but that's just, to me, that's, that's cookbook, what, what you're describing, right? And, but it's funny. I've been doing, what, 18 years now when I first learned cookbook. And in all of that time, when I ask people to share the data, I won't use the term cookbook, but I'll, what you were just saying is, you know, how many conversations do I need to have in order to get the right kind of meeting? How many of those meetings do I need to get to progress to stage two? Let's call it proposal stage, keep it simple, yeah. et cetera. Nobody, nobody knows those numbers. Nobody. The, 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 the finest, the most granular answer I'll get is talk time, which is uh, kind of a, yeah, yeah, it goes by but, the, you know, large numbers, fine, but the, the five or six best salespeople who I've ever worked with or you know, been around and what have you uh, can all tell me, you know, uh, they get to the end of the day and they, you could see this panic in their eyes. What is it? I know I need to make 35 cold calls a day. I didn't get them done today. I needed 25 and 10 down on the week. Yeah, I, I have to get that. And I'm looking at tomorrow. It's a busy day tomorrow. I'm not sure. I'm just going to have to make those calls in the car. They knew that, I, you know, and, you know, 
you can tell how far back I'm going because basically it was just cold call. I mean, now it's emails, LinkedIn's and this, that and the other and something else. Um, but they knew. Yeah. They knew their lowest common denominator of activity. Yeah. Look, so, so taking a sales leadership perspective on it, why, why aren't more sales managers holding their people accountable to that? Because that's the only way you can manage it. There's no point in saying, look, the problem with your golf game is the ball isn't going in the hole quick enough or fast enough. Mm. You have to manage the swing. Mm. And, and I'm just curious to know your thoughts on why that isn't happening, why they're not inspecting what they expect. Uh, there's not a, an effective way of recording. I, I, I'm not flipping over into a big outreach pitch, but, you know, predominantly there isn't the reason why I ended up working here as a customer before was because I had this kind of light bulb revelation when I was like, hang on a minute. I, you know, I'm having them fill out spreadsheets and sheets and, you know, and guess what? 90% of the salespeople won't do it. Mm. Uh, you know, cause they just won't. The ones who are performing, I do the admin for them because you know, go and perform. So, and then you focus on the two or three people who aren't doing very well. And we all know that is a recipe for failure because actually, I should spend 90% of the time with the reps who are bringing in 90% of the revenue, not 90% with the 10%. Mm. It's very easy to do when you don't have the data. Mm. But uh, if you've got something that is tracking that data and is saying, right, how many people did you speak to today? How many conversations? Where are they at in that funnel? You can then look at it. Yeah, activity drives results. And if the activities aren't there, then you can have that conversation. And... Last time you and I spoke, we talked about that formula. Frequencies times competencies equals results. So if you do more of these things, we know what they are. We've spoken about some of them now. And then you do them with these skills and you're enhancing those skills, your results will be exponentially better. Mm. So, so I wanted to look at that with you just from yeah. two ends of the spectrum. Um, sorry. And so one is, so one is the SDR BDR function was originally set up to, because deal salespeople did not want to, I, I, I do this because there's no field anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they did not want to be making cold calls. And I suspect a lot of that was they were just uncomfortable making them. Now, they justified it by saying, oh, I'm a closer. And my, you know, because I close business, I should be out in front of customers all the time and not doing these menial tasks. But in reality was they were petrified and they justified it this way. And, and, and then, and then this, uh, this is what I noticed. I saw this behavior. And then this industry grew up around inside sales versus field sales. And it's often, if you talk to Scott Lees, et cetera, it was often it touted as a, a way of being more efficient that you specialized in certain areas. And I just often wondered, and I still wonder, and I just wanted to get your opinion on it, is how much of that separating the, those activities is pure efficiency 
it's the frequency to buy compounds you just mentioned and how much of it is because just some salespeople just don't want to make the calls and won't make them and we'll use any excuse not to make them so therefore we just need to find somebody else who do that for them uh i kind of agree with some of it and and not with other parts of it so uh, yeah cold calling stuff nobody likes rejection we all like talking to people who want to talk to us and guess what live opportunities is talking to people who want to talk to us although i'd still say the vast majority of deals that end up in no decision or someday someday yada yada is because you weren't talking to the people you should have been talking to in an opportunity you were just talking to the people who liked you mm. so you know you still have to cold call mid opportunity only to call the other people around this opportunity to make it happen that um my um and it just came to me as you were talking through it i think the if, if you spoke to aaron ross kind of the, you know the godfather of the sdr bdr model right. aaron and, ross was the guy i should not scott yeah. sorry it's yeah. aaron ross you're right yeah so from when he set up the enterprise sales team at salesforce it was about the same time that um software companies were being moved from annual to quarterly targets which is being driven by the financiers mm. you have an annual target if I do boom and bust from one month or one quarter to the next, so in other words, I'm building my pipeline, I'm hammering the phone calls because I need some opportunities. When I've got some opportunities up and running, that's the bit I like doing. I'm going to be running opportunities. It's easy to make an excuse. I don't have time for building my pipeline. When those opportunities are closed and you've got nothing to do, you're going to go into pipeline building mode. And, you know, I saw good reps still do their number by doing five or six deals a year, but they came in clumps. Mm. But when you have an annual target, that's okay. Because I got to my number at the end of the year. When you have a quarterly target, that's not okay anymore. Especially if everybody gets into that, you know, the summer quarter, Q2, no business gets done. We're going public and we need business every quarter. Even if we've got some season out, we need something going on. So that, then created a crush in terms of timing that said, right, I can't be working opportunities and opening doors at the same time. Mm. Right. Um, now, what I would say is now it's progressed and there's now specialism. And because I'm more of a process, I'm looking at these things. And obviously where I'm working, I get to really look at it. The skills and attributes required to open the door is very difficult or very different Ooh. to helping the customer close it. And, you know, one is, is getting somebody to, you know, they always, what was somebody that said to me the other day, if you want somebody to buy something new to replace something, they've got to sack what was in there in the first place, uh, was the way they put it. Mine has always been, you know, you, you need to get somebody to the point where making uh, doing nothing is the worst possible decision they could make. Yeah. That is away messaging, whatever you want to call it. It's going down the pain funnel, it's stripping line. It's helping them discover uh, pain they didn't realize they had. Mm. Those skills, and, you know, I'm, I got introduced to the pain funnel in, what, 96? Mm. I'm still learning it. I still find myself getting to the end of a call going, how the hell... Did I not ask the second, second level pain question? You know, so why didn't I quantify that? You know, it's difficult. Those seven questions, I'm still learning 25 years later. Uh, and I like to think I know them better than most. But anyway, um, and um, so 
opening the door and, and, and inspiring people to move into the pipeline, if you get that right, the number one competitor for every software company or every company in the world is do nothing. They end up running out of steam. Well, if you do that opening the door bit right, do nothing has the potential of becoming the second biggest competitor. Your biggest competitor will be somebody providing another solution because they're going to do something now. Yeah. Well, regardless of that, that's still money literally falling off the money tree. You'll be in just a worldly different place. But then you need to have the reps on the other side of the equation keeping up the momentum so that the, if you've got one side of the equation is opening the doors and i think we're doing a great job in that area and in, in building that out uh the second one is is changing the cadence and the uh, and the timelines associated with the sales process from that point onwards to closing the door and um, for me, the, this notion of a one-year sales cycle at that point when it's 67% of the way through the process is just wrong. Should now be no more than 70 or 80 days. Yeah, I often see that, that, that touted, and, and it drives me crazy. And it's not just that. I, I've heard other things touted as well about the type of rep you have to have, you have to be a challenger, et cetera, all of these things. And I just, it's, it's, it's oversimplistic. And it bothers me that people actually don't start to dig into it that says, okay, well, what's behind that 67%? Are there pipelines where that's true? I'm sure there are. Uh, in, in maybe in B2C, for example, that you know, if I'm going to buy something as a consumer, I'll probably have done some research online, have a good idea what I want to buy, kind of have my mind changed, yeah, but at least I'm going in there with something in mind. But in a complex B2B environment, uh, it's just completely oversimplistic. I mean, one of the best reps I knew, uh, she used to call on public sector bodies. And she would start an opportunity two years before anybody else knew it existed. Mm. She would be on EU websites looking up legislation that was at the green paper stage and watch yeah. legislation go through. And she'd be taking that into her buyers and saying, you know, have you seen this? What, you know, how do you plan to attack? And they were kind of like, oh, first time we saw it. And it might be two years later before they hit the buy button. Like, and in a scenario like that, there was no budget when she starts out, none. So this whole idea that an opportunity is an opportunity, unless you have budget, authority, need and timing, all of that. It's, I just think there's a lot of fallacies in that thing. They're oversimplistic. People just hear them and gonna go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And buy into it and we need to push back a lot. Like a good magic trick, the selling was done a long time before you think it was. Yes, that's very, very true. 100%. Uh, yeah, I, I never thought of it that way, but you're right. It is. It's just like magic. Mm. Um, and, and I was curious, I had a question around the SDR thing as well in terms of hiring them. Is that I've often seen over the years where I have a couple of questions of mine. One is where there's huge pressure on a hiring manager that you're not allowed to hire anybody and then all of a sudden the flag goes, the traps are open and now you've got to hire as many people as you can. And I, I saw one manager, like, and he had something like 15 interviews in one day and he told me, Paul, he says after interview four or five, it was just like, you know, I, I was just kind of going, did I like their personality? You've got a job. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I wonder, do we hobble 
managers in that sense. And then I wonder, the other part of the question was, I wonder, do managers hobble salespeople? So I was talking to a rep earlier, and uh, one of the questions I was asking was around um, what their sales process was. And he says, you know, first meeting, he says, I like to give a demo of the product, get them excited. Now, you were talking about relationships earlier. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm, I've never, ever gotten excited over a software demo. It's not <laughs> something that's going to turn most people on. But that was his, his, his thinking. And I would imagine, I have no evidence for this, but I've seen enough of it to believe that it's, there's a truth in it, is that there are managers out there putting pressure on reps to get a demo, get a demo, get a demo. Because a demo is a very objective thing in terms of I can tick a box and say, demo has been done. It's much mm. more objective than getting a sense of, well, how bought in is a buyer into this? Uh, how, uh, which way are they leaning? All of those kind of things are much more subjective and that's, you know, requires a gut to kind of make sense of them. And so I just wonder, do we, are we hobbling our own efforts? to be more effective and actually wasting a lot of time on training when in fact we should be just simplifying and putting into practice what, you know, common sense. I'm not sure what the, the question is. I agree with <laughs> a, lot, a lot of what you say, which is, you know, I can't stand, I can't stand, you can only sell the value you create. I think you gave me that quote. Um, which is, uh, you know, and you can't create value showing a demo. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's... Um... So, so, so the question, Tom, was around, are we our own worst enemy? Are managers hobbling? What do I mean by hobbling? You know, are they, are they making life difficult for, for uh, reps by training reps in one thing, but then telling them they have to do something else? And the same with hiring people, that there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of best practice out there on how to hire people and what stages and steps to put in and whether it's testing, using different people to get different perspectives, asking consistent questions, yada, yada, yada. And then what we do is we say, okay, see all those rules, apply them, but you've got to hire 15 people in one day. Yeah. Impossible. So, look, uh, so uh, when it comes to hiring, the number one most important job for a sales leader is hiring the right people. Literally, if you do that well, Everything else is easier. Mm. It's just, it's a given. And, and the earlier you can get them in their career, even better. If you can spot talent early, mm. even better. Because just, you know, I, I'm trying to use a sporting analogy. Like, you know, the academy players that come through football, not necessarily through Tottenham. I know you're having a dig earlier, but, you know. Well, um, I, I just um, feel your pain because I... Yeah. I, I, <laughs> well, we've had some good academy players. But, you know, those folks who are born in the image of the club, you know, they, they take very little additional training. They're already in the, the kind of, they're in the mold already. Yeah. And if, you can, if you've got great talent scouts, you can pick those people earlier in the career, all the better. Yeah. Uh, so that's number one. You need to get good at hiring. Um, two or three top tips for that. Um, uh, use some form of um, uh, of testing engine, whether it's, I know we spoke about Divine in the past. Um, I like OMG at the moment, Objective Management Group, uh, goes a, a, another couple of steps deeper for me. Ooh. And, um, and that, that's, that's good as well, because that guy behind it is an Alexander guy. Yes, 
and you know 2.7 million tests done and you know the people who pass it are all in the top 15 percent of sales reps and it's uh, it's identifying so it means you turn away a lot of people you like yeah uh but you shouldn't be hiring people you like you should be hiring people who are going to do well yeah um so that's number one number two is is then make sure you test them for competencies and it's not just a cv walkthrough you need yep. to get really good at the questions you're asking yep. um, and then hire those people. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, with regards to you know, measuring, it, it feels a bit like, and you, this is where I feel for sales leaders and stuff is, you know, it's, they're like, you know, football managers of like the 1950s, you know, what have they got? They're literally looking at the field and working out whether somebody's, you know, coughing up a lung, whether they need to come off the pitch or do they look heavy footed and they just swap somebody in. They haven't got data. Mm. And nowadays, you know, they're just, these are informed decisions. They know exactly what to track mm. uh, and they've got more stats than you can, you know, the skill of a, in, in football or in golf or in any elite sport now, it's not getting the data, it's knowing what's important. Mm. Yeah, and um, I always love that story from, the, um, from uh, Sir Stephen Redgrave. I, I saw him talk a few years ago, I think it was for his fourth gold medal. Tells the story after his third one, the coach came up to the boat as they pulled in, nearly passed out, can't think, you know, neurologically they're dead because the, all the blood's gone to their, to their muscles. Yeah. Uh, and all the coach said was four and a half seconds. Uh, they needed to be four and a half seconds quicker, mm. four years time to win the gold medal again. The coach was already thinking about the next one. And uh, what they found, they did, they did, um, they did one thing for a year. Mm. They rode down the Thames at 20% speed for a year. I know. I was like, why on earth would you do that? And he said, Oh, well, if you look at the boat, it's a V shape like this. Yeah. And, and the boat is as it's most efficient when it stays level. Yeah. Uh, and, and when it rocks, obviously more of the boat is in the water and it slows it down. Now, when you row slowly, because you're not going through the water as quickly as your balance has to be on point. And you've got four people in the boat. So they rowed slowly for a year to improve their balance. So that when they went fast, amazing. it stayed level. Yeah. And uh, so Stephen Redgrave said that was worth, I think, in of itself, about 1.6 seconds. Wow. It's the biggest determinant factor. Same as the cyclists and the velodrome. They gave them heated shorts, didn't they? So, they're, so they're, they took inspiration from Grand Prix cars. So well, the tyres are warmed up before they go out on the track. The British cyclists in the 2012 Olympics, they put hot shorts on. They worked out that that was the bit that made the difference. Yeah. Well, Without data, you can only measure what you've got. If demos is the only bit of data I've got, I'm going to measure demos. Uh, you and I both know that, you know, that's basically the more demos you do, the lower your win rate's going to be. If it's that stage in the sales cycle, it's not about demos. Yeah. So yeah. talk about what I'm really fascinated with, and I, and I mean this genuinely from an outreach perspective, um, as in the company rather than the, the, the verb, uh, is what are the kind of things I should be measuring? You know, consider me to be like, I, I, I don't use outreach, right? Yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm curious about it. 
and I'm, 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 I've always been a believer in cookbook. When I started, there, were, there was no technology around that. So I'm coming back now full circle on this going, you know, what are the kind of technologies that would make my cookbook far more efficient and effective? So I have an idea of the kind of things I need to be measuring, but in terms of making that consistent and also scaling, I guess is the other big part of it. And that's not a, a challenge I'm going to have in my yeah. business, but it is a broader challenge mm. is what are the kind of things uh, that outreach measures and where, where, where are they, where are they the pivotal points in terms of the, the, the leverage points that really make a difference that when you measure those, they, they, they have a, 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 an effect that's bigger than, I'm, I can't think of the right word. They have yeah. a, you know what I'm trying to say? I do. Yeah. So look, an outsized effect. So, um, the, the first thing you've got to do is know where you are. Um, so period, there's no, there's no, otherwise there's no kind of, you know, because I can't tell you that doing this number of activities with this conversion rate is the utopia because every company is so unique, the sheet music analogy. But we spoke about earlier was, you know, close deals. Everybody knows how many deals they need to close or what their opportunity win rate is. Go and find out how many of those initial meetings you need to have for your opportunities. First number to find out. Don't need a system for this. Um, second one then is how many short calls do you need to be able to do to get a meeting? Mm -hmm. and the third is how many activities to get to those short calls? Yeah. Then, then get that data. Then think about, right, okay, can I, can I do anything to increase the number of activities? Because if I increase the number of activities, that's mm -hmm. either adding people, process, or technology. Yeah. Outreach is the technology version. Then, then I'm going to have an impact down those lines. So that's, that's number-wise. I'll do this in 30 seconds. Number two, then, is looking at conversion rates. Ooh. So how do I get more conversion of my activities into these short calls? How do I convert more of these short calls into, uh, into initial meetings and so on and so forth? And that's using call recording, conversation intelligence. Uh, if you don't have any of those technologies, just be on the same phone line. Yeah, dial in together, conference call it, do whatever yeah, to make that happen. Uh, so that's in the pipeline area. In the selling area is my last thing. The C-grade rep, when we talk about premature demo, and to stop that, the C-grade rep will stop doing discovery when they believe they can justify the list price. <laughs> the B-grade rep stops doing discovery when they believe the customer can justify the list price. The A-grade rep stops doing discovery when they believe the customer doesn't care what the price is. Oh, I love that. Right. The A plus rep, which we got out this morning, because I asked a rep what would be better than that, because I'm not the oracle of all knowledge. And what she said, the A plus rep stops doing discovery when the customer can tell them how much it's worth. And I was like, so what, they don't just care but they can tell you why. And I was like, oh, that's really good. Yeah. I, I've never thought of it that way. Like they can actually regurgitate it back to you. That's, that's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Or to somebody else. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And it's so true. That's, yeah. 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 I have a question here, Tom. Do you mind if I throw it out to you? Go on. From Kevin. 
Uh, Tom, how do you ensure salespeople have consistency month on month on their performance across uh, both revenue and activity metrics? Yeah, so, um, so as difficult as it is, I don't actually look at revenue. So because that is the outcome. So there's uh, only just because of time. Uh, look up on the internet, process-based thinking. Again, it comes from the sporting world. Uh, no golfer cares where the ball ends up. They care about their process of striking the ball. There's Ooh. too many variables that happen afterwards. You can't measure those, those additional variables. So it is frequencies times competencies equals results. And good frequencies, you'll know what they are, no more than five. Think about what are five things I want them to do. You can only change one of those frequencies once a quarter. So they stay there for a period of time because it takes a while to master them and they should be significant. Uh, if you want some inspiration around uh, frequencies, think uh, OKRs, objectives and key results. If you search for that for salespeople, it'll give you loads of KPIs you can go and look at for frequencies. Yeah. Competencies, again, I, things I look for is, uh, you know, uh, going through the pain funnel, open questions, uh, talking above the line language, those kind of things. And then the results will happen. Mm. And uh, so if you pick the right frequencies and competencies, the revenue looks after itself. Makes perfect sense. Makes per and, and in a sense, that's what outreach is all about, isn't it? It's about capturing, measuring. Uh, we're, yeah, so outreach captures, allows you to see and understand the frequencies across it's not uh, across the whole of that sales process. Yes, as a byproduct of me doing my job, it's collecting all of those frequencies, which allows me to understand those and what works. Competences, that's a leadership skill. Yeah. And revenue, we get that out of our CRM system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tom, I can see that we're up on the hour and uh, you've been gener very generous with your time as always. And I wanted to thank you sincerely. I, I again, so many nuggets in that. I'm going to go back to, there's a few of them that had me smiling and had me thinking <laughs> as we went through. And I'm going to go back. Like the last one, and obviously it's the most re recent one, is the CBAA uh, plus player. I think that needs to be captured on one of those uh, with your image on it that, <laughs> that for people to see because it is it boils down so much truth into mm. consumable piece of information that you look at and you go yes and there's been several of those so i need to go back and, and but uh, as, as always it's, it's been fascinating and i want to thank you for your time despite the gremlins at the beginning <laughs> all i can say is i was glad i had a plan b there you go it's always good to have a plan B. It's good to have a plan. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I love talking to you, as I know. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you very right. much, Tom. Take All care. Right. Cheers. Bye.